And as you're taking your seat, I invite you to turn in the Gospel of Mark to Mark chapter 12. Our scripture text this morning is Mark chapter 12, uh, reading from verses 18 to 27. And reading as we customarily do from the English Standard Version translation. Mark 12, beginning at verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Father, help us by the ministry of your Holy Spirit to understand uh, what Jesus is teaching here. Understand what Mark has presented in selecting this story out of the last week of the life of Christ. And how this relates to not only uh, Mark's audience there in Rome, but how this also speaks to us. We would pray, Father that uh, that which is said against the Sadducees would never be said against us. Help us to be Christians who know both the Scriptures and your power. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to this passage this morning, and we need to remind ourselves of of the context when, when this is taking place. It's the last week of Jesus' life. We know that on Sunday he entered into Jerusalem and in that manner in which the crowds, the Passover crowds, were greatly acclaiming him. He rode in in such a way that there were some who recognized him as the son of David, and they were putting palm branches before him and their cloaks before him. And even though he was mounted on the the foal of a donkey, it was still a kingly entrance in fulfillment of prophecy. And the, the Jewish leadership were quite upset by this, the Pharisees and the scribes, We're basically saying, why are you allowing the people to praise you this way? Because it upset them that Jesus was taking the kind of acclamation that only ultimately the King of Israel, the Messiah, should ever receive. So that was on Sunday. We know that when Jesus comes in, he looks at the temple and he leaves. On Monday, he comes back to the temple. And that's the day in which he interrupts the worship by overturning the tables chasing out uh, the people who are selling the 
the, the, um, the pigeons and the doves, sacrificial animals. He interrupts the worship. He interrupts the commerce that was necessary in some fashion for those who traveled to Jerusalem to purchase worship sacrificial animals, but he also entered up the actual worship itself. All of that was symbolic. It was symbolic of the fact that this temple is no longer ultimately the temple, that what's taking place here is under the judgment of God. And the final outworking of that judgment was in AD 70, when everything that Jesus is going to predict about the temple in Mark chapter 13 will come to pass. Not one stone is left upon another. The temple is so demolished. And even many of those stones taken down and tossed into the Mediterranean Sea. Complete demolition of that temple. So now what we have is Jesus' authority. So it's Tuesday. Jesus' authority being tested. So he's tested with respect to who gives him the right to do these things. And he says, well, John the Baptist. Tell me, who sent him, God or man? And that stumped them because if they said, well, God, he would say, then why didn't you follow him? But if we say man, we're afraid of the people because they think he was a prophet and they might turn around and stone us. And then Jesus goes on to tell a parable, an important parable about God or a, a, a farmer planting a vineyard and sending servants time and again and the servants being mistreated by those who were the, the tenants who had, were renting out the property. And then the landowner sends his son and he gets killed. And all of this basically to say, this is what you're going to do to me. I am the son that the landlord has sent to receive from the tenants what I should receive. And of course, there is the judgment and the statement that what was yours will be taken from you and given to those who produce the fruit thereof. Again, judgment upon Israel, judgment upon that nation because it had proven to be unfaithful to God. And then the render unto Caesar. So the scribes are trying to get him to, to basically uh, uh, fix himself on one of the horns of dilemma. Uh, pay taxes or not? Well, if he says don't pay taxes, then that's going to please a lot of the political zealots. They don't want taxes to be paid. If he says pay taxes, that's going to upset a lot of people who think, you know, well, okay, so Jesus pleases some people, but not others. Anyway, it's just, how does Jesus answer it? He splits the dilemma. He says, look, you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you give to God what belongs to God. Answers him totally. So now the Sadducees come. This is a different group. Uh, they are the ones who are part of the, the ruling class. They're the ones who have most control of the temple. And they're going to pose a question to Jesus as well. And they're going to tell us elaborate, fantastical kind of story to do so. So we're going to look at that. We're going to see what were they trying to do to Jesus. But in the midst of this, there's a very significant lesson. And it has to do with what Jesus says about the scriptures and the power of God. Our knowledge of God is from the scriptures. That should be basic for all of us as Christians. Uh, those who try to live a Christian life apart from the scriptures are going to wind up neither knowing the word of God nor knowing the power of God. And the statement power of God here is a synecdoche. It's a part that represents the whole from autonomy. What is it? 
I need my English. <laughs> Autonomy, part for the whole. Lydia, <laughs> help me out here. Somebody help me out with a figure of speech. Anyway. Yeah, so it's a word representing a larger subject. So the idea of power of God here represents the whole knowledge of God. If you don't know the Scriptures, you don't know God. If you don't know God, you will never understand the Scriptures. That's basic for us as Christians. But the interesting thing is, there are man-made religions based on the Bible. That's the lesson we see in terms of the Sadducees as we get into this. And so what I want us to appreciate, the three points that we need to see out of this passage and the interaction with Jesus is this. Man-made, Bible-based religions exist. Man-made, there is operative. Man-made, Bible-based religions exist. But man-made, Bible-based religions will always oppose Jesus. And then thirdly, man-made Bible-based religions know neither God nor the Bible they claim the religion is based upon. That's what I want us to appreciate out of this passage. It's really about discernment. It's about understanding that ultimately our responsibility is what? <laughs> it's to know the Scriptures and to know God, and to know God through the Scriptures. And to know that the scriptures always, every, the whole counsel of God leads us back to Christ and everything that God has done for us in Christ. So first of all, man-made Bible-based religions exist. We see this in the Sadducees uh, because we, we need to ask who were they and what did they believe? They're a man-made religion. How is this the case? Well, Mark, first of all, identifies the group by saying that they did not believe in the resurrection of the body. Well, what we know from history, and the information about the Sadducees is, is not extensive, but what we do have is very significant, is that they were a religious party within Judaism. Now, some people don't realize that the Judaism of Jesus' day had several religious parties. Now, not parties like having fun. Parties like, you know, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, what we would call denominations. What we would call would be different religious movements within a bigger religious movement. Judaism was not unified, unified at all. So there were the Sadducees, there were the Pharisees, there were the Essenes, there were the Zealots who were quasi-political religious. There were several groups within Israel during the time of Jesus. The most prominent were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They're the ones who are mentioned frequently. There were scribes, by the way, who were mostly Pharisees, but there were also scribes of the Sadducees. They were experts in the law. Okay. So, just like there's different Christian traditions, there's different traditions in Israel. The Sadducees were the party that, that for the most part, controlled the high priestly families. They were uh, drawn from the aristocrats of society. Uh, they were the wealthy, and they had been for the last 200 years by the time of, of this story here. Pretty much controlled the temple worship pretty much controlled the temple politics, which is why they were highly influential with respect to how wealthy they were. And the Sadducees were, were not middle class. Sadducees were the upper crust in society. 
So they wanted to destroy Jesus because the day before Jesus had just stopped, put a temporary halt at least to all their revenues when he cleared out the temple. Also, though, the Sadducees held beliefs that were distinctly different than the Pharisees. And so they were at odds with each other all the time. The Pharisees were like strict separatists. Um, the law of Moses, plus their traditions about the law of Moses, were to be kept so strictly. In fact, one of the beefs that the Sadducees had about the Pharisees was this. Like Jesus said, um, you Pharisees have all these traditions that interpret the law, and you take your traditions and interpretations of the law to such an extent that sometimes you actually cancel out what the law requires you to do. Now, today we would say, it looks to us like in traditional Roman Catholicism, for instance, there's a whole lot of laws and regulations and, and traditions and so forth that are practiced. They would say, where do you find that in the Bible? And then sometimes what is done in, in that kind of a tradition that has lots and lots of traditions will cancel the grace of God and the gospel and will even keep us from doing the things that we ought to be doing. That's sort of the parallel. The Pharisees were very strict but they had something extra than the Bible to interpret the Bible. The um, Sadducees, on the other hand, looked at the Bible and they thought, the Bible, hmm, the books of Moses, most important, no question about it. The rest of the Bible, the Old Testament, not quite so important. So they would subordinate any teaching they found after the book of Deuteronomy to anything they thought they discovered or understood in the first five books. So what we call that a canon inside of a canon. Not a good idea. Uh, they didn't take all the Old Testament on the same level so that Scripture could compare with Scripture. No, they took the first five books and made everything else fit their interpretation of the first five books. The other thing is, is that the Sadducees were much more comfortable with how the culture had become very, very Greek-like in the Roman world. So here in, 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 in Israel, uh, with the Roman occupation, there were a lot of practices and a lot of habits that, that the Sadducees were very comfortable with. Um, they weren't as concerned with the worldliness of society like the Pharisees were. But what's most important is how the Sadducees rejected a number of beliefs that Jesus held and that Jesus actually held in common with the Pharisees. Now, that shows up in a very big way in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, because remember, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. At the end of Paul's third missionary journey, he comes back to Jerusalem. And so this is, you know, like 30 years, 25 years after Jesus. Paul comes back to Jerusalem, and he gets arrested there uh, by the Jewish people. Actually, he gets arrested by a Roman because there was a, an excitement and almost a riot going on, and they thought Paul was the one at fault, but he really wasn't. So during his arraignment, Paul looks out and he sees Pharisees. He sees Sadducees. And with great wisdom, understands that if he can get them pitted against each other, He's going to be able to uh, get out of this mess in some way. So, Acts 23, verses 6 through 8. 
Here's what we see. When, now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. In other words, the, the Sadducees were, today we would call them Unitarian Universalists. If you know anything about the Unitarian Universalists, they believe there's a deity, but they won't define what he's like. They say that Jesus was just a good ethical teacher. They don't believe that there's any supernatural working of God in the world. They don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. They don't believe in the miraculous. They don't believe that you live on after you die. They don't believe that there's a separation of soul and body at death. They don't believe human beings have a soul. They don't believe any of those things. They believe the only life there is is the life you have here and now, and that's it. I spent time reading their whole statement yesterday. So, But the Sadducees were just like that. That's important to know. The Sadducees did not believe that human beings were body and soul. They were, in fact, adopting the Greek view of materialism. You are a physical body, and that is it completely, nothing more. Well, so they believed when the body died, human life died completely. Human life was life in this world only. Now, that's what they believed. So, although they believed in God, they rejected everything else that was supernatural. And although they believed the Old Testament scriptures, again, their emphasis was on the first five books of the Bible above the rest, they declared that the plain reading of the law in no place ever indicated that there was a resurrection from the dead or that there was any judgment from God ever. That was their approach. So what that reminds us, though, and, and the lesson for us, is to recognize that there can be Bible-based religions that reject the truth of the Christian faith. We need to appreciate that. We need to appreciate it because I'm not talking here just about Jehovah's Witnesses, Bible-based. Mormonism, Bible-based plus other things. Or formerly the Worldwide Church of God, which was quite a, a group. I'm not just talking about those groups. I'm talking about things that are happening even within the evangelical church today where beliefs that have been held for 2,000 years and 2,000 years of Scripture evidence for those beliefs are now being reread. And being reread along statements like this. Well, you know, Jesus never said a single thing about homosexuality. What's your problem? Statements 
especially dealing with who we are as human beings, what the Bible has said, what people have held to for the last 2,000 years as standard Christian understanding of things. It's people who claim they are Bible-based who are rejecting these kinds of things. Now, I know most of you aren't aware of this. You don't, you don't read it, you don't see it. But it is an avalanche of writing. It's an avalanche of books that are being published over and over again. So that those who hold to a biblical understanding of these things are increasingly uh, in the minority. Christian colleges are capitulating. Denominations have already capitulated. So, what's the lesson? People can claim that their religion is based in the Bible. The Sadducees would claim their religion was based in the Bible. But even as the Sadducees denied any number of beliefs that the Scriptures teach, so today we have people who say, we believe the Bible. And then say, but the Bible doesn't teach that. But that's not an important thing in the Bible. Now, the second point I want us to understand is this. If a a religion, a man-made religion is Bible-based, it will invariably always oppose Jesus and the things which he teaches. So we see this in the illustration of how the Pharisees, I mean the Sadducees here, were, were testing Christ. Mark identifies, first of all, their their disbelief in the resurrection. And so they pose their question to Jesus in verses 19 through 23 in the form of what we might call a scriptural riddle. Right? So riddle me this. There are seven brothers. Right? The first one marries, but he dies, leaving no offspring. So, according to the law of Moses... Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5 through 10. The next brother's got to marry him. Same thing happens. He dies, leaves no child. Then the third. Then all seven. So, great teacher, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since she had all seven as husbands. That's what they're trying to do. This law in the Old Testament, by the way, was written specifically to help the Israelites understand laws of inheritance. Very crucial. Laws of inheritance. The land and inheritance had a kind of economic survival and crucial nature that we haven't seen in 150 years. But 200 years ago, this kind of thing was very, very important. Um, Owning land was one of the most significant economic steps toward freedom. And so holding land and owning land was very, very important for the people of Israel. So that's why this law was here. But the interesting thing is, is that the point of the story with respect to the Sadducees has nothing to do with inheritance and land. They're using this text in an entirely different way. They're using this text in a manner that was never designed to address. And so right there we see Scripture twisting in the making. So, they want to use this law and the story to challenge the idea of the resurrection. So in verse 23, they ask that question. 
in the resurrection when they rise again, whose wife will she be? So their strategy here is to use the Bible, this section of the law, against the teachings of Jesus because they knew that Jesus believed in the resurrection of the dead. In fact, just outside of Jerusalem in the city of Bethany, just a few weeks earlier, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. The Sadducees knew the story. Now, it's likely they even heard eyewitness accounts. Still didn't believe it. Because they were so strongly in their anti-supernaturalism. And we see this today. Miraculous things can happen and people can say, I see it, but I don't believe it. There's got to be another explanation. Lazarus wasn't really dead. He was just four days in the tomb in a coma. He got better. Yeah, he was there in the tomb and all those spices and everything made him feel better. So whatever he was sick of, whatever we thought he died of, he didn't really die, he just went into kind of a coma and uh, the coolness of the tomb. All this kind of stuff can be said. You can explain anything away if your heart is hardened against it. So their strategy here is to try to get one part of the scriptures to testify against what Jesus himself is teaching. Because if there's a resurrection from the dead, then wouldn't it also be the case that marriages get resurrected? I mean, that's their thinking, that's their assumption. But if that's the case, if there's a resurrection of the dead and if marriages get resurrected, then we've got a strange situation here of a woman who's had seven husbands. And for the, the Sadducees, this was absolutely absurd. Now, you don't appreciate the absurdity. But understand this. In today's world, a woman having seven different husbands, not too difficult, just ask Elizabeth Taylor. Right? Some of you know who she is, was. In all the history of Israel, they knew about polygamy. But they never knew about a woman who had multiple husbands, one right after the other, or multiple husbands at the same time. just didn't exist. So they knew that Abraham had Sarah and Hagar. They knew that Jacob had Rachel, Leah, a couple of concubines. They knew David had several wives. They knew Solomon had 700 wives and 300 porcupines. They knew all these things about these kinds of marriage situations in the Old Testament. But this to them was absolutely absurd. You could never imagine marriage being distorted in the direction of one woman having a number of husbands. It just didn't work that way. In fact, in most of the ancient world, you didn't have a situation where there were multiple husbands and one wife. It just didn't exist. So if it's impossible for that kind of thing to happen, in their mind, their logic, it's impossible for there to be a resurrection of the dead. That was their argument. Now, when you break it down like that, it just doesn't seem all that strong, does it? But I want to point out something here that's very important because Jesus' answer depends upon us getting this. What the Sadducees rejected was a Jewish understanding of the afterlife and not a Greek understanding of the afterlife. For all the Greeks and all the rest of the world religiously, 
where you aren't an atheist and a materialist, or a materialist in some fashion. The afterlife in all the ancient religions involved the death of the physical body and the soul or the spirit continuing in another world, in another life. That next life was not at all according to the Jewish understanding of the next life. wasn't at all. That next life was always put in terms of the spirit going on. It's a spiritual existence. It's spiritual existence only. It's not a physical existence per se. Not a physical existence of molecules and things like this. That's not the issue between the Sadducees and Jesus. Now, the Sadducees didn't believe in the Greek understanding, but their argument is against the Jewish understanding. The Jewish understanding of the afterlife was always connected to their most basic biblical anthropology. What is a human being? A human being is composed of two things. A human being is composed of body and soul. Both of those in a composite unity is what a human being is. At death, the soul continues to exist, but that's not the permanent state of the soul. Now, how do we know this? Well, it's the position that Jesus taught, and he taught it absolutely clearly. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He warns his disciples with respect to pending persecution. He warns them this way. Do not fear those who can kill the body, which is, don't fear any human persecutor. Rather, fear him who can destroy. Now, the word is destroy, not kill, and there's a reason for that. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. Now, right there, Jesus endorses the biblical understanding that we are composite beings. We are not just a physical body. We are a physical body and we are a non-physical substance as well. So whether the Bible calls it soul or spirit, we are a composite. We are physical. We are non-physical together. That's what human life is. The separation of the body from the soul is death. We also see Jesus speaking to this in John chapter 5, where everything Jesus says not only is about us having these two parts, but it's about the resurrection. So in John 5, Jesus teaches this resurrection this way, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to, to whom he will. Now the concept there, raises the dead, New Testament scholars say, look, the raising of the dead is the resurrection. Now, of course, it can be used spiritually, symbolically of your regeneration. But its primary meaning is always a physical resurrection. So Jesus goes on, verse 28, 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all those who are in the pews, no, all those who are in the tombs, meaning physically, dead in tombs, will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now the point is, that's the belief which the Sadducees rejected. That's what they're trying to stump Jesus on. Not life after death, no. 
everybody believed in life after death except a few people like the Sadducees and Universalist Unitarians and others. It's the resurrection. The concept of the resurrection from the dead in its biblical understanding doesn't exist in the other religions of the world. It just does not exist. It is uniquely Christian. It's uniquely Judeo-Christian. Now, the irony here. Tremendous irony. I was thinking about this. It's always dangerous to say, if I had been Jesus. <laughs> but just imagine for a moment that, that I'm not Jesus, but I'm standing there, and I know what's going to happen on Sunday. It's, you know, Tuesday. Jesus, don't say anything to them except this. Look, Sadducees, wait till Sunday. Because he's going to die on Friday, and he's going to be resurrected on Sunday. <laughs> he doesn't have to bother with this argument, Right? He doesn't have to bother with his argument at all because the truth of the resurrection is going to be demonstrated by his own bodily resurrection from the dead on Sunday morning. But I wasn't there. The other disciples didn't think about that. So Jesus does what Jesus should do and the wisdom that God's given him because he is the wisdom of God actually wants to answer them on their own scriptural foundation. You think you can use Scripture to confound Jesus, Jesus will use Scripture to confound you. And so that's what he does. So a final point. Man-made-based religions do not know God, and they don't know the power of God. They don't know his word. They don't know him. So Jesus responds, verse 24, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So here's the fatal flaw in all man-made, Bible-based religions. They really don't know the Bible, and they really don't know the God of the Bible. That's very important with respect to where things are going in Christianity today. Don't believe these people who claim what they're teaching, which you know to be wrong, is Bible-based. It's Scripture-twisting. And don't think because they say the name of Jesus all the time and claim the same stuff you do, don't believe them when they say they know Jesus. Matthew chapter 7, Christ told us there'll be those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out miracles in your name? Cast out miracles. Cast out demons in your name and do mighty miracles. And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you doers of iniquity. That's what we need to remember. Just because people claim the Bible, just because they claim Christ, doesn't mean they're Christians. Doesn't mean they know the God of truth. So, what Jesus reports here, you may know this. If you have ever talked to anyone who's come out of a cultic kind of group, they'll tell you, we didn't know the Bible. We didn't even really know God. We certainly didn't know the grace of the gospel. I think about this for a moment because I think about what Jesus meant by the power of God here. It causes me to think not about his omnipotence in the sense of the creating of the heavens and earth, which is part of it, but it's what Paul said 
about the power of God. Romans chapter 1, 16, 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, or the righteous shall live by faith. So, the power of God in the gospel. Man-made religion. People claiming to be Bible-based Christians, but not knowing the Scriptures and not really knowing the God of the Bible. There are several notable atheists out there today in the world of scholarship. There's one who's my age, of whom this is very, very true. They once claimed to be Christians, but they knew not the scriptures that they came to reject, nor did they know the God that they claimed to repudiate. Let me tell you a story. Uh, Such a man was a student in Pepperdine about the same time I was in college. Had a Christian girlfriend. His his atheist testimony is he identifies that he was an evangelical Christian during that stage of his life. His girlfriend has a tragic accident that leaves her physically injured in a highly serious way. I don't remember how it crippled her. I just remember that he said that all of us Christians prayed for her to be healed. He says, she was such an incredible human being. This evil was so incredibly wrong. God didn't answer our prayers. So, he rejects God, becomes an atheist. Well, and by the way, he drops the girlfriend too. Doesn't say a lot for his hanging in there with love, does it? But that's his story. He said, I know God doesn't exist because you Christians believe that prayer works and it didn't. And therefore, God allowed this evil to be perpetrated on this girl and didn't do anything about it. At the same time, that was a West Coast story. There was an East Coast story. High school graduate dives into the Chesapeake Bay, hits her head on a rock, breaks bones in her neck, almost drowns, becomes a quadriplegic. And her life story is a story about the power of God working in her, not to heal her of her quadriplegency, but rather to enable her and sustain her through all the pain and suffering to develop a ministry over 40-some years that has been an international ministry that has impacted thousands and thousands and thousands of disabled persons and their families. Johnny Erickson Tata. Now, her story is a story about the truth of Scripture Because she came to discover that God never promised that she would be healed of her physical maladies. And she came to understand that the scriptures declare the power of God when it says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. And I'm way over time this morning. 
I'm going to wrap this up and say the, the thing that I wanted us to understand out of this whole story about the sad Sadducees and their sad state of affairs and beliefs. Sad because they didn't believe in the resurrection. You know, That's why they're sad, you see. I, I wanted you to... I wanted you to to grasp this great understanding. All the promises of God are true. But the promises of God are not that God will deliver you out of every problem you have. It's that God will deliver you through every problem you have. That He who has shown me many trials and distresses, God has shown us many trials and distresses, will revive us again. That's why we sang hymn number 94, taken out of Isaiah chapter 45, I believe. One of those 40s in there. Where it says that God takes us through the deep trials but the overwhelming floods will not overflow. He takes us through the fires, but they will not consume us. That's what we need to understand. We, we need to believe above all else that our knowledge of God is from the Scriptures. If we know the Scriptures, we know God. If we know not the Scriptures, we can't really know God. And remember that Jesus said this in John 15. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you desire, and it shall be done for you. For this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The power of God working in us is that we might bear much fruit for the glory of of our Heavenly Father. All the difficulties we go through, all the trials we face, are ultimately for what? That there might be displayed in us, in our weakness, the very power of God by which He raised His Son Jesus from the dead. Let's pray. Father, enable us Enable us to so grasp the gospel, to grasp your truth, to grasp the scriptures, that your great work would be increasingly manifested in us who would live not out of our own wisdom and strength, but we would live in dependence upon the power that you give us, trusting in your word and the gospel, your promise that you who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In his name, amen.